When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The night may be long and the dark may be deep, but the answers are there to be found. Whether it's the normal, the abnormal, or the paranormal, you're in the right place. Let's go beyond reality. Sometimes it's the normal, sometimes it's the abnormal, sometimes it's the paranormal, but it's always beyond reality, regardless of the fact that I'm still stuffed up from this uh, this post scaricon cold, flu, whatever it was. I think it was the flu. Don't worry, you can't catch it over the radio. We're all safe, or you're all safe anyway. Uh, welcome to the show, everybody. It's Beyond Reality Radio. This is our second night in Monster Week. We are continuing with our look at monsters from folklore and legend and pop culture. And uh, Carlin uh, Betcha will be our guest tonight. She's written a book that's called Monstrous, the lore, gore, and science behind your favorite monsters. We're going to talk about some of the most well-known monsters, you know, the things you see in Movies, some people see them in the woods behind their house. Some people see them in their closets. But what's the science behind some of these creatures? That's what we'll be talking about tonight with Carlin. Uh, Tomorrow night, we'll continue with Monster Week with Robert Bitto. Robert is a author. He's got a new book out called Mexican Monsters, and we'll introduce, he'll introduce us to the cryptids and the legendary creatures of Mexico. And many of them will be completely new to us. That'll be an interesting discussion. And then Thursday night, something a little bit different. We want you to tell us your paranormal stories. What have you experienced? If you've had a ghost encounter, or you've had uh, a Bigfoot sighting, maybe you've had a a, a, a hat man uh, sighting in your room during a sleep paralysis episode. That seems to be more and more common. Anything like that, uh, UFO sightings, um, anything on you, black-eyed kids showing up at your door, anything like that. Regardless, um, we want to hear your story. And the way we're going to do this is you need to, if you're willing to share the story with us, you need to send uh, an email to our producer, Slick Eddie Edwards. And the way to do that is just send him uh, right to slickeddieedwards at gmail.com. And Eddie is spelled E-D-D-Y. It's a Y, not an I-E. SlickEddieEdwards at gmail.com. Tell him you're interested in sharing your story with us, and he will uh, get back to you, and he'll set it up so that you can be on air and tell us a story. No reason to be nervous. Nothing at all. It's going to be fun. We'll also have a Halloween expert on talking about traditions in Halloween and the history of Halloween, all that fun stuff. But Halloween night's a special night for all of us, for everybody, but particularly those of us who are night owls and uh, fans of the paranormal or scary movies, whatever it happens to be, this is our season, right? So that'll be Thursday night's show. A lot of great stuff coming up. Make sure that you spend a moment and go to the YouTube channel. If you haven't found it yet, you go there and you just uh, search out JV Johnson. You'll find it. We stream live there. It's a great way to catch the show on your smartphone if you are in an area that the uh, the local radio station isn't carrying the program yet. It also has a vast library of back episodes and interviews. A lot of great discussions there going back a um, um, year and a half or so. Uh, close to 400 of those are on the uh, YouTube channel for your enjoyment. Also some special programming as well. So a lot of great stuff there for your uh, access and interest on the YouTube channel. Like us on Facebook as well. We're going to go to break. When we come back, we will bring our guest of the evening in. Car- uh, Carlin Betcha is our guest. We're talking about her book, Monstrous, the science behind monsters. Did you know that online retailers like Amazon have constant deals that can save you money on the things you buy every day? It's no joke. Save 40%, 50%, even 80% on great products. And all you have to do is know about them. Noodle Shark is the way to be alerted when something good is coming your way. Noodle Shark is the social media page that 
countless great deals that not only save you money, but give you the deals before anyone else has them. All you have to do is find Noodle Shark on Facebook. Search it as The Noodle Shark. That's The Noodle Shark, because you deserve to save too. Become a shark and save. It is Tuesday night if you're um, not on the East Coast, because we're now we're into Wednesday morning, aren't we? It is actually the 30th here on the East Coast. But either way, we're uh, creeping and crawling closer to Halloween, one of our favorite nights of the year on the program. Looking forward to uh, finishing the week out as we continue to talk about monsters. And then, of course, your paranormal stories on Thursday night for the Halloween show. But tonight we're going to be talking about monsters specifically. Not any one or two or three, but a bunch of them. Our guest tonight, Carlin Betcha, is the is an author and illustrator of a book called Monstrous, the Lore, Gore, and Science Behind Your Favorite Monsters. She's also written a couple of other books. We actually had her on the program before. One of those books is called They Lost Their Heads, What Happened to Washington's Teeth, Einstein's Brain, and Other Famous Body Parts. And also, I Feel Better with a Frog in My Throat, History's Strangest Cures. Carlin, welcome to Beyond Reality Radio. Great to have you back. Thanks for having me. All right. So I got to get one thing out of the way here because I, you know, I've had a lot of people on the program. We've had vegetarians on the program. We've had vegans on the program, but we've never had an uglitarian. <laughs> I really need you to tell us more about this thing because I honestly think you're onto something here. I see you've done your homework and read my bio. Yes, um, I'm an uglitarian, which means I only eat animals that I deem are ugly. (laughs) So pigs are really cute to me, and they're the third smartest animal, so I will not eat pork, bacon, anything of that nature. Fish are fair game. You know, they're not cuddly, so I'll eat them. I assume since beauty is in the eye of the beholder, that really opens anybody up to be able to determine for themselves what's ugly and what's not ugly. Well, you know, at a lot of dinner parties, you can excuse yourself from eating a dish because (laughs) (laughs) it depends on the animal and whether or not you you deem that animal precious enough. Well, I think you're. I think you're uh, brilliant for for that particular approach. I I, I really got a kick out of it. Actually, um, I, I listed uh, your books. Monstrous is what we'll be talking about tonight. But you've also written. They lost their heads, and I feel better with a frog in my throat, or a couple of your other titles. They're very unique, diverse, and curious titles. What helps you decide what you're going to write about uh, when you set out to write a book? Well, my approach is I'm always trying to get that reluctant reader. And what I mean by that is the kid who maybe not will not gravitate towards history or science, but I try to make a subject as seductive as possible. And I do that by either bringing the weirdest, most bizarre facts into the equation or sometimes even a little on the gross-out factor for the boy audience because I will use any trick I can to get teens and tweens reading. Is it that difficult these days? I mean, I, I, it was fairly difficult when I was a teen and a tween um, to get me to open a book. I would you know, rather be outside running around in the dirt or whatever, uh, playing football, whatever it happened to be. Um, but I imagine now with all the electronic distractions that it's even harder. Yeah, that is, that's a really good point. I think our attention spans, or maybe even our brains are changing with neuroplasticity, that we don't have the focus that we used to. We're used to reading online. We're used to our attentions getting diverted very quickly. So it's very hard for an author, probably even more difficult, because you're competing with so many other forms of entertainment, which are also can be educational, too, and are also a great way to learn. So I view books as a way to supplement those, those educational uh, avenues. And, and talk about attention span. I just had a, an incident here in the studio. My assistant producer, Arturo, was here and uh, he was trying to show me a video that was actually a clip from the World Series game tonight that mm-hmm. just ended. And, um, you know, the video starts playing and an ad played prior and he was all upset that he had to sit through like a 10 second ad. And I'm thinking, Arturo, you know, we used to have to sit through four or five minute commercial breaks, regardless of what we used to watch. But we don't have to do that on a regular basis anymore. And as you said, it's kind of changing the way we consume and we perceive and what our expectations are. And our attention span is changing because of it. Yeah, I mean, I, I really do believe that our brains are changing in a certain way that maybe they're not keeping up with the pace of technology. I mean, 
there's been a lot of scientists who wax poetic on this subject. But I viewed my job, especially with this latest book, it has a lot of infographics. And one of the beautiful things about infographics is it it can convey huge amounts of data very quickly. And that, I feel, is very powerful for readers who are distracted easily. That's a great point. And not only does it uh, convey a lot of data, but it puts it into a perspective that you don't get just by reading it. Yes, exactly. Um, you know, I, I see a trend now with a lot of books aimed at middle grade and, and tween audience, and adults too, that infographics are being used more and more for that very reason that you just said. It, it is, it, you can convey, I mean, the downside of it is you can sort of massage the data to make your point in a way that is more construed to your opinion. So you, ha- you do have to be careful of that. But it is a way to give a large amount of data to your audience quickly and in a way that's more, I mean, we learn better visually. That's very clear. So that was my objective, to give a large amount of data in a visual sense. What made you want to be a writer to begin with? You know, I actually fell into writing in kind of an odd way. I originally started submitting uh, to, I submitted to Houghton Mifflin. It ended up in a slush pile for those who don't know, a slush pile is just a big pile of unsolicited submissions. Those are all the submissions they do not want. Those are the submissions that are, are not aged and you're just blindly submitting. And I, my first book was called Who Put the Bee in the Ballyhoo, and it was about carnival stars through history, like bearded ladies, oh, wow. fat ladies, uh, contortionists, Houdinis in it. And I submitted artwork because I was first an illustrator, and my editor got back to me. Well, she wasn't my editor at the time, my future editor. She got back to me, and she said, I love the art with this. Why don't you write a story around it? And I, I said to her, I go, I'm, oh, I'm not a writer. I was just hoping to get illustration work. And she said, yeah, well, why, don't you, why don't you give it a try? Why don't you, you try to write a story and see where you can go with this? And I did. That was about 13 years ago. And, you know, 10 books later, the rest is history. You mentioned uh, that particular subject matter is, is of a great interest to me. Um, ever since I saw the what would be considered now to be very um, distasteful film called Freaks, uh, yeah. the Todd Browning film. And then I, I saw a documentary not long ago, and I, I believe it was on Netflix. I'm not sure, though, about the uh, sisters, the, the conjoined twins, the sisters. Do you, do you remember their names? Because I can't, I'm trying to recall them, I can't. Um, but they not only were a kind of a sideshow thing for a long time, but then they got a little bit of celebrity, and they did some acting in addition to, I'm not sure if they were in Freaks now. I think they were. I don't remember. Yeah, they were. There was they were, a, there was a lot. Freaks. So Chang and Aang were in my last book. They were yes. conjoined twins that right. also went in the story. And, you know, God, I'm getting old. I cannot <laughs> remember the name of the two. They began with, I think it was the Hilton sisters. I yeah, think. that might be right. That might be right. And, um, and, and, and that story was so compelling. And then, uh, and not to spoil it for anybody, but uh, they talk about um, how one of the sisters ended up passing away. And the other sister, in order to be saved, would have had to have been detached and she wouldn't allow it to happen. She just she expired, laid there until she expired with her sister. Very, very touching. Yeah, and something similar happened with Chang and Aang, too, that, you know, with conjoined twins, since they share organs, when one twin goes, they have to be, uh, and sometimes they can't be, right. you know, sometimes if they're sharing a major organ, if one dies, with Chang and Aang, there was one brother, it's kind of a hilarious story, because there was one brother who was an alcoholic, and the other brother was teetoler. <laughs> That's so and, weird. Uh, and, you know, he, he was basically killing his liver, and the other brother, you know, has to pay the consequence by dying an early death. <laughs> wow, it's so strange. Hard to, hard to fathom. Um, but you, uh, somewhere along the way, we just got a couple minutes here before this uh, first break that we have to take, but uh, somewhere along the way, uh, as you're looking for these topics and you're finding interesting things to write about, you stumbled upon monsters. When did that happen? So it's kind of strange, but every book I do leads to the next book. And the idea for this book came out of uh, They Lost Their Heads, the book I did previously before this one. Uh, There was a story of Mercy Brown. Mercy Brown was a young girl in Connecticut who had tuberculosis in the 1800s. But at the time, we didn't understand what tuberculosis was and how it was spread. So what people believed is that it was actually vampires feeding on the living. 
And I know that might, might sound irrational to modern ears, but if you think about it, tuberculosis was a wasting sickness. I mean, that's why it was called consumption. So people would slowly waste away. They would get paler. They would be coughing up blood. It looked like a vampire was feeding on you. So in Mercy Brown's case, she got tuberculosis, and as was often the case with this very contagious disease, it spread through the family. And her, you know, her her brother got it at one point. Uh, Mercy did die, and to cure her brother, they dug up Mercy Brown because she was a suspected vampire, and that's what they did with suspected vampires. They dug them up, and they fed her heart to her brother in hopes of curing him. And when I read that story, I thought, wow. There's this strange intersection of superstition and science, and I wonder what other cases are like that. What other monsters, you know, fed into our fears, but were really could be explained with science? And that's that's basically where this book came out of. That's an amazing story. Now, isn't uh, did did that take place, or is the grave in Rhode Island? Uh, I believe it's Connecticut. Connecticut, it's Rhode Island. Somewhere I, I in there. Yeah. yeah. Um, my, my co-host, Jason Hall, is not with us tonight, but um, he's, he often talks about being very close to that, that site, and I, I don't remember the details of that. But that's a fascinating story, and I can understand why that would prompt you to want to look into this in more detail and see what other cases um, throughout history uh, follow that same pattern. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's funny how one subject will lead you to another subject, too, and you fall down that rabbit hole so easily. Um, we have about uh, 30 seconds here before the break. Um, when you decided to write this particular book, did you set out with a list of monsters that you were going to uh, research and, and include in the book, or did that come naturally? Well, I wanted to tackle the popular ones because I truly believe that monsters are a reflection of our fears. So each monster was chosen if they could fit into a science lesson. And what I mean by that is they had to teach some some core science lesson. And there were a lot of monsters that got cut. So it had to have a great origin story, and it also had to, to fall into some sort of science lesson. I hope you're getting an opportunity to watch some of your favorite scary movies this week on Turner Classic Movies, American Movie Classics, whatever that channel is. Um, all of the channels tend to have their fare of what would be considered to be some classic horror movies. And along the way, you're going to see some monsters. These monsters have become part of our popular culture. They've been, be, become part of us in many, many ways. And that's what we're talking about tonight with our guest, Carlin Betcha. Uh, Carlin has written a book called Monstrous, the Lore, Gore, and Science Behind Your Favorite Monsters. And uh, we will take your phone calls later in the show at 844-687-7669. Carlin, in the beginning of the book... You tell a story that kind of illustrates the, um, I guess, the importance maybe or the weight of science. I found that really, really fascinating and a great way to open the book. Can you tell us that story briefly? So I, I wanted readers to cogitate on, on why we feel fear. The emotion of fear is a, it's kind of a primal instinct to feel fear. And I go into this a little bit more in the book, but fear basically keeps us alive. And I talk about our ancestors who, when they confronted the saber-toothed tiger or any sort of threat, those that feared that threat, they they survived. The ones that did not, they didn't survive. So I, I didn't want to dismiss fear because fear is important. But I also want readers to understand the, the neuroscience behind fear, what goes on in our brains when we feel fear. And the, the example that I give that I, I think is apropos to understanding, you know, what you said about horror movies is, you know, when, you, when someone sneaks up on you and screams, boo, and you, you startle and your amygdala is like goes on overdrive and dopamine gets released and you feel that fear. But then your second reaction is kind of laughter for a lot of people, at least it is for me. And I think the reason why we feel that elation after something has startled us is because we have felt fear, yet we survived. We conquered it. Because, and I, I talk about this a little bit more in depth, but dopamine gets between pleasure and, and, and anxiety, it gets crossed. We don't always know which emotion that we're feeling at that time. So what I wanted readers to understand 
is to honor fear. It's important, but also understand why we feel it. That's similar to the, um, I guess, justification, if you will, for pain. Uh, people, you know, often wonder, well, why do we feel pain? Well, pain is telling us something's wrong. And uh, fear is telling us, from what I'm hearing from you, that something could be wrong or we need to be cautious or we need to protect ourselves. Is that what fear does for us? Yeah, that's exactly what it is. You know, after we feel fear, our prefrontal cortex kicks in and reason kicks in and logic kicks in and says, okay, this is not a threat. We, we can proceed from here. And the example that I always give is... If you look throughout history, some of the ways humans have acted completely heinous have come out of moments of fear, you know, xenophobia and, and, and fearing the unknown. Right. So if we, can, if we can unpack fear and understand why we fear the things we do and use our prefrontal cortex instead of our amygdala, then we can understand it better. And that's not to say that people who are brave don't experience fear. Um, and it's not to say that people who have fear can't be brave. Those two are not incompatible. Correct. I mean, like I said, fear keeps us alive. It's very important. Um, I'm not sure if you've heard of the, um, the psychological term of the a mis- misappropriate arousal misappropriation where you know they say they take couples on roller coaster rides and you know they're scared so much this is not in the book by the way they're 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 terribly scared and then they get more attracted to each other afterwards because that they're mixing the feeling of fear and pleasure at the same time so i mean i always give my friends the advice if you want a guy like you take out go on a roller coaster ride well i was just going to ask you does that i mean obviously a very uh common teenage ritual is to take a date to a horror film i mean that's very very common the horror film market was often um heavily influenced by the teen market uh is is that kind of connected to what you just said yeah, I mean, well, teens actually release more dopamine than adults do. I mean, they, it's one of the, the, if you're a parent, you will understand this. Teenagers do very stupid things, and it's because their brains aren't fully developed yet. So we always have to remember the reason why, why teenagers are taking risks is because that area of their brain is not fully developed. So we need to be aware of that. But yeah, I mean, teens, Teens in a movie theater, that's a great idea, because that's exactly where you feel fear. And then take that a step further for me, because, um, you know, I'm a big fan of horror films, but there are people that aren't. And um, people often ask me, well, why do you like horror movies? Why do you like being scared? Um, And I can't answer that question, but you may have just answered it for me. Uh, Maybe there is something going on in the brain that is a uh, kind of a a soup, if you will, that uh, combines both the emotion of fear and the emotion of pleasure uh, combining for uh, uh, one outcome. Yeah, you know, that's an interesting point. This is just my theory personally. I think that when we watch a, a horror movie or read a scary book, it allows us to confront fear in a contained way. We get to close the book. We get to turn the movie off. We confronted our fear, and we survived. Now, when I say horror, I'm not talking about the slasher films. I think those are kind of more gratuitous and on a different level. I agree. I'm talking, I'm talking about, you know, a, a plot-driven, fearful movie where you're following the narrative arc, or in a book, following the narrative arc, and you're scared. You're really scared, but you get to the end of the book, and you close it, and you're done, and you've confronted that fear. If you think about it, a lot of fairy tales are like that. Um, you know, Snow White, um, the Big Bad Wolf, they're all about confronting these very real emotions in, in a contained way. Let's talk about some of the monsters that you've included in the book. And first of all, the approach. You, you take a look at uh, what would be considered, I guess, to be either the pop culture um, version of a particular monster, the historical legacy that, that created that what we know that monster to be today, um, and then you apply some scientific ideas to the, con- to the whole thing. And, and I think the first one you feature, um, and I may be wrong, but I think the first one is the Frankenstein monster. Yes. 
So Frankenstein has a really interesting science lesson behind it because it's really the story of electricity. I mean, not completely. There's different elements of Frankenstein. But the, the story of electricity is an interesting one because when electricity was first introduced, it was really a form of entertainment. Uh, people would have these electrical parties where they were basically using static electricity to shock people and, you know, move like tiny little pieces of gold leaf through static electricity. And that terrified audiences. And one of the stories that I tell in the book is the, per- the first person who was electrocuted. Um, and, you know, it's, it's kind of a, it's, it's a grisly tale, but uh, they basically, they didn't understand where, what electricity was. Was it this strange life force? Was it, you know, this, this paranormal something from the gods? They didn't really, audiences didn't really understand it. So an Italian scientist named Luigi Galvani, um, he decided, he did all these experiments on frogs where he would electrocute frogs uh, using an electrical current. He noticed that the frog's legs would twitch, and he thought that they had this sort of vital force inside them called animal electricity. And then Galvani's nephew decided to take it one step further 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 and his name was Giovanni Aldino and he wanted to take his uncle's experiments to a live corpse so he convinced london officials to hand over a corpse to him and uh, he basically ran an electrical current through this convicted criminal named george foster and you can imagine right it's a darkened room <laughs> George Foster is a corpse lying on a slab, and he starts running electrical current through a dead body. And the muscles start twitching, because muscles will twitch if you apply, even dead, you know, even dead people, if you apply electrical current to them, it's going to twitch. And people have never seen electricity. So to them, it seemed like he was bringing them back to life. And, you know, all these stories, what, uh, Percy Shelley, uh, Mary Shelley's a husband, he had an electrical machine that he would pull out of his desk to entertain his, you know, dinner party guests. At one point, he even electro- accidentally electrocuted the family cat. So we don't know if Mary Shelley went to any of these electrical parties, but she definitely was in that collective consciousness where she heard about them. And it's believed that she pulled all of those references in order to create Frankenstein. And it's interesting today because, I, you know, I'm getting back into the science of it, but we, use, we do use electricity to bring people back to life today through defibrillators. That's right. So it, it kind of comes full circle. And one of the things, I mean, maybe you already know this, but I didn't, is you know that scene where you see in, in movies where, um, you know, the doctors are all standing around and the, and the patient's heart has flatlined. They say code red or something like that. Mm-hmm. And they get out the paddles and they start shocking the patient. And I didn't realize this, but that is, that is actually impossible. And once you have a flatlined heart, a defibrillator, it has to have a current to work with. So there's nothing, once a heart flatlines, there's other drugs that could possibly bring it back. But once a heart flatlines, you need an electrical current to disrupt that, that beat to bring it back to life. And so I break down in the book, like, how exactly would Dr. Frankenstein's machine work? You know, because in the movie, and I'm, I'm switching back to the movie versus the novel. In the movie, he has these, um, some people think they're electrodes, some people think they're bolts, but they're right at his neck. Right. And if you were to put an, uh, an electrical current right through the neck, you'll fry the brainstem. And without a brainstem, you can't breathe. So right there, Frankenstein's machine is sort of shot. So you, I hope you can understand what I'm trying to get readers to do. I'm trying to get them to really use critical thinking and think, what if? Could Dr. Frankenstein's machine work? Well, no, it could not. But we do use electricity to bring people back to life in other ways. All right, I think we have uh, the topic for Carlin Vecchia's next book. We have to figure out what a Vegemite sandwich is, Carlin, because I've been singing that <laughs> lyric. I've been singing that lyric since 1983, and I still don't need, I mean, I know it's something, but I have no idea what it, was, what it is. You know, the, the first 
time I tried Vegemite, I realized at that moment that I didn't know what they were saying in that song until, (laughs) you know, when you make the the connection. Right, so that aha moment, yeah. Um, Yeah. Tell us about, we have, this is a short segment, but tell us about the illustrations in your work, particularly this book. Some really great stuff in there. Yeah, so I kind of use a, a little bit of a different process when making these illustrations. I will start with a sketch, and I will scan it in, and then I will bring it into a vector program. I use Adobe Illustrator, and now I will basically uh, draw the vectors, uh, and then on top of that, I will add texture and depth in either using my own um, backgrounds or watercolor backgrounds or acrylic backgrounds or somewhat with a digital painting program like Photoshop or Painter on top of that. Do you um, actually produce that artwork for uh, people to purchase and hang on their walls? You know, I've never got, really got into the fine arts uh, thing because I, I, I'm more interested in communicative art. So I've just always, I was in advertising before this, so I try to illustrate in a way that will communicate and reach the masses. I'm not really interested in creating art to be, to be hung on a wall. I don't know, it's just not my well, I, I have was, friends who do that. I was looking through friend. it, and I'm thinking, wow, that looked really good in my office hanging right there. Was, <laughs> well, um, thank you. Yeah, uh, the, the book has, uh, when you first look at it, you, you automatically think it's got kind of a, um, you know, a, 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 I'll use children's book, for lack of a better term, um, look to it. But the information inside, as I was reading through it, I thought, wow, this is really fascinating stuff. It's really great for, for anyone of any age who has an interest in this uh, subject matter. Yeah, thank you. I mean, like like I said earlier, I, it's, I, I, I try to make... One of the challenges with a lot of the art was is that I didn't know whether or not to... Take, for example, the Godzilla chapter... I didn't know whether I should portray Godzilla in sort of a campy way or mm. a more poignant way because of the story behind it. So it, it's always interesting as the illustrator what emotion you're trying to elicit. Last night we actually had um, someone on talking about vampires, so I don't want to spend too much time about that, but we've got to mention it. And I'm particularly interested in you telling us a little bit more about some of these real creatures that you might encounter during the course of your day that are blood-sucking creatures. Those things really exist. Yes. So <laughs> the vampire bats are real, so you, you, the kids do have to be... Scared of those, but then there were also bloodsuckers that have helped us through history, like leeches. Leeches definitely get a bad rap. Uh, if you live in a certain area and you happen to wade into leech-infested waters and get a few leeches on you, just understand that they're not going to hurt you in any way, shape, or form. And when I was researching this book, I, I was fascinated by the fact that leeches throughout history have really helped us in, in many ways. I mean, now they're used in modern science to reattach limbs and whatnot. But they really were, a, a, you know, the word, even the word a leech means to heal. So I, I kind of, I, I, I want to, as far as all of the blood suckers go, I think leeches need to be put into a separate category because <laughs> they are the, the nice blood suckers. You know that scene in, in Dracula when Jonathan Harker says um, he compares Dracula to a filthy leech? Mm-hmm. I'm going to take umbrage with that scene because leeches are actually very helpful. If you lose a limb, you will want leeches attached to your body. But then there's other blood suckers like mosquitoes who, you know, obviously cause more deaths than any other creature. And there's so much science behind mosquitoes, how we're trying to change uh, the way they reproduce to, right. you know, to not spread diseases. And, you know, then there's this kind of funnier ones in the book, too. Like the, um, one of the ones I love is the vampire finches uh, because, <laughs> you know, they're, they're so cute. They're so cute. <laughs> if you look at a vampire finch, it's so cute. And then you realize that it, like, it basically attacks these booby you know, they're called boobies, booby birds, and just pecks, 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 and pecks, and draws blood, and then all their other little vampire finches swarm in and start drinking blood. Wow. So, yeah, there's a, and then there's a vampire moth, too, another weird one. So there's a lot of blood suckers that people need to be aware of, but leeches have to be not in that category. And I wanted to add ticks to the list. I don't remember if that was in there or not, but oh, we're talking ticks. about ticks a lot these days. Yes. 
Um, and, you know, you hear how we're trying to genetically modify ticks, too, um, it, to change, basically genetic, genetically modify the mice so that they can't get the ticks. So, yeah, uh, ticks, ticks do not fall into the nice category. Uh, just a quick reminder, though, this is Monster Week on Beyond Reality Radio as we do this for Halloween week. And uh, Thursday night, we need your help, though. Thursday night, we're also going to talk about your paranormal encounters, your stories. If you've got a story that you're willing to share with us, ghost, UFO, Bigfoot, other cryptid, uh, shadow people, uh, hat man, there's, there's so many it could be. If you've got one of those stories, please let us know and you're willing to share it. Please let us know. Email our producer, Slick Eddie Edwards, at his email address, which is very simple. It's his name, full name, Slick Eddie Edwards at gmail.com. Just remember that Eddie is spelled E D D Y, not I E. It's Y at the end. Slick Eddie Edwards at gmail.com. We want to have your story on the show with us. So send us an email. Also, if you uh, can't always stay up for the show, I know it's late sometimes. If you're on the West Coast, it's a little bit easier. But here in the East Coast, it's midnight, and that's difficult. Then consider subscribing to the podcast. The show is available as a full podcast, and it's generally, given our schedule, it's generally available the next day, and you can catch up on what you missed. You can find it on, find it on any of the major podcasting platforms, um, like iTunes and um, Google Play. Uh, it's, it's pretty much everywhere. It's also on YouTube if you want to visit the YouTube channel at JV Johnson. Uh, so look for it as a podcast, downloadable to your smart device at any point, automatically even. And it'll give you a great way to uh, make sure you stay up on the discussions. Again, tonight we're talking about monsters with Carlin Vecha. Um, Carlin, I want to just rewind a little bit because we went into the break talking about leeches. And I know that you probably talked about uh, some of this stuff in your book, I Feel Better with a Frog in My Throat, History's Strangest Cures. But did do leeches... Um, I know they, they, we, we have some medicinal use for those them now, but at a point, weren't they misused? Wasn't it kind of uh, thought that leaching bad blood out of the body was a good way to uh, heal people that had uh, certain illnesses? And I think that was a bit of a fallacy, wasn't it? Yeah, I mean, one of the most famous bloodletting examples, which wasn't leeches, they actually bloodlet him, was... Sadly, George Washington. That's right. Are you familiar with that story? Absolutely. I mean, the poor man, he probably, we don't know if he died from the blood loss, but it was most likely from the pneumonia or lung infection that he got. But he lost a lot of blood, and he was a big man, and they just kept taking blood and taking blood. And um, you can imagine when you have a virus how much that would weaken your system to be losing blood at the same time. So the belief was that, that you had to balance your humors. So if you were, uh, you know, too on the the hot end that you that the blood would cool by releasing all this blood, and poor George Washington, you know, he was he was he was stoic to the end, you know, undergoing all his doctors poking and prying him. And all, all they needed to do was probably just open up his airway a little bit more. But, yeah, uh, bloodletting, leeches, yeah, they were definitely overdone a lot, which happens a lot. I mean, we could look back and we could say we're overdoing chemotherapy. Yeah. Maybe 10 years from now we'll look back and go, okay, chemotherapy may have been effective, but was it effective to that degree? Does that book... Uh... The, the the strange cures that you include in that book were they are they all effective or do you talk about things that were effective and things that were not effective? So that book has kind of an odd format where you I ask the reader to guess before they turn the page which cures worked and which did not, and some are kind of fatuous and some are very helpful. An example would be maggots. You know if. Mm-hmm. If you have gangrene and maggots start feeding on your flesh, let that's go. actually going to, yeah, let them go. It's going to be super helpful. Um, other cures, mummy powder, you know, that there was a big mummy powder craze for a very long time where everyone was ingesting, uh, grinding up mummies oh, left and geez. right and ingesting the powder. And none of it was doing anyone a lick of good. So there's, uh, and again, my objective is to get readers using their own minds to figure out what's 
you know, what works and what doesn't. So they have to guess before they turn the page. And they may be surprised and they may not be. I had an experience as a child. I I spent a great deal of time with my grandparents who were of Italian descent, uh, spoke very little English. And I had a bad cold and, um, you know, with with a very severe cough. And my grandfather used a remedy that uh, I guess they used in Italy uh, where he put turpentine on my chest. Oh, I thought you were going to say mustard plaster. Well, there was that. another one. It blistered you. Yes, and I ended up going to the emergency room. Um, oh, because turpentine is, yeah. Yeah. I mean, even inhaling it will hurt. Will yeah, hurt. yeah it, was, it, was, it was a sad situation. My grandfather thought he was helping, and it turned out to be rather, I mean, obviously I'm okay, uh, but it was mm-hmm. scary for a while. Um, let's, let's turn the page back here to Monsters. Um, we have talked about Frankenstein. We've talked a little bit about vampires. Uh, let's talk about zombies, because zombies seem to hold our uh, imaginations in pop culture anyway, uh, in a way that most others, at least at this point, don't. Uh, there's some majorly successful television shows based on the zombie lore, um, some great movies, all of that. And, 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 and there's also some tongue-in-cheek stuff that comes along with us. But tell us about zombies. So zombies are fascinating because they're definitely trending right now. Have you have you seen The Walking Dead? I haven't seen it in the last couple of seasons, but I was a pretty hardcore Walking Dead viewer for a long time. Yeah, same here. Um, so Walking Dead is interesting because they put this quip forward that there's, um, and this is different from the original zombie movies with Romero, but they they put this movie quip forward that that there's a zombie virus and that you just have to wait it out in a survive this apocalypse until they find a cure for zombieism. And I thought that was interesting because, okay, so if you become a zombie, for say, because, again, the purpose of the book is to ask what if, you actually probably want to eat as fewer calories as possible because you want to extend your miserable zombie existence as long as possible before you, your intestines explode and you're completely goo. So my theory is, is that you don't want, if you become a zombie, let's just say at Halloween you become a zombie, <laughs> you don't want to eat everyone's brains and all the flesh you can. You actually want to eat as fewer cal- as few as calories as possible. So I have an infographic in the book which uh, has a zombie calorie counter, which tells the reader which body parts have the fewest calories. And, you know, this is so interesting as a researcher because there are people who've studied cannibalism and have researched this thoroughly, that they understand exactly how many calories are in each organ. You know, they understand the pancreas has this much and the brain has this much. But uh, it's funny because, you know, a lot of the movie lore, the zombies eat brains, not all of them, but brains are on the menu. And the brains are not what you want to eat because if you eat the brains, then you could get a prion disease like Kuru. And Kuru occurs when, you know, someone eats those pathogenic proteins. And then it causes, like, it's similar to mad cow disease. So it causes all these neurological dysfunctions where you have jerks and difficulty walking and basically you look like a zombie. So why would you eat brains if it's going to make you act like even more of a zombie? You should definitely skip the brain. <laughs> so I, my hope is that if you do become a zombie in the apocalypse, you will understand how to survive. Uh I talk about the zombie topic quite a bit uh, because one of my favorite films is Night of the Living Dead, which was George Romero's and, and my, also my friend John Russo's film, um, which kind of changed the whole idea of what zombies were prior to that film. And there were a couple others that hinted at this particular direction. But prior to that, the whole idea of a zombie was more of not, not so much of a corpse as it was a person um, influenced by voodoo generally. Um, that, mm-hmm. that became kind of a mindless slave, right? Is that is that what what, yeah, we, what um, we had prior to so, that? Yeah. So I mean, this is another thing that's uh, fascinating about the origins of monsters: how they go through so many re- reiterations. So the zombie originated from the word the uh, zombie. I might be pronouncing it, but it's N Z A M B I, and it's the name of 
of the people's supreme god, and it came out of this voodoo religion. So, but what they would basically do, and again, I know you you already know this, but it, they would use a black magic priest called the Boker, and he would use this basically this zombie cocktail. And you know, I I just think of the scene in Shakespeare with Macbeth's witches because it right. it contains all these ingredients, but the zinger in in it is usually um, uh, what's found in the puffer fish, and it causes anyone who ingests it to basically go into this death-like state where their heart rate slows down and they appear dead. So it was a way to control the workforce to get them to do their bidding. And it's, it's you know, zombies are interesting because that is so different from Romero's version of it, right? Where, yeah. you know, they're... Yes. Are you still yeah. There? So, yeah, yeah. it's a, it's you know it's interesting to chase, to chase sort of that narrative thread of where monsters become what they are. Yeah, and and I also find it interesting that um, when you watch Night of the Living Dead and you look at those zombies, they actually act with intelligence and intention. Um, mm-hmm. Which has kind of been lost in 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 the zombie definition. You know, you watch Walking Dead, and there's they're just they're actually you know they're just bent on biting and eating. Um, but in Night of the Living Dead, they're they're using tools. They pick up rocks. They pick up uh, sticks to try to break down the door. Uh, and, and that's kind of changed a little bit. And we might be getting a bit off topic here. But I want you before I go to my next break here in a couple minutes to tell us about the crazy cat lady. <laughs> part of of your your zombie section yeah so so this is kind of a personal story because i i had a cat for a long time so i have a spread in the book which talks about parasites that try to control your brain and there's several examples but i'll I'll talk briefly about toxoplasmus gondii and it's a parasite that it's it's objective is to get inside a cat's reproductive system. It's not its objective is not to get inside humans. So what it does is it first infects a mouse and it rewires their brain in order to make the mouse attracted to the smell of cat urine. Because if you, if you've ever had a cat, you understand that mice stay away. Even if there's a cat in the house, mice stay away. The smell of cat urine will will make them run for the hills. But if they have been infected with Toxoplasmus gondii, the parasite, then they are immediately attracted to cat urine. So what happens is that they approach the cat, the cat eats them, then they can reproduce inside the cat and they meet their objective. But then there's a, a sort of a side narrative that happens because humans can also be infected with Toxoplasma gondii. And we get it from, um, I'm sure a lot of your listeners who have been pregnant have been tested for, for the parasite because you're not supposed to clean cat litter if you're That's pregnant. Right. And you can also get it from gardening. And the reason is is because it, it can cause, they've, they've linked it to all these personality do- disorders like schizophrenia. But what I find fascinating about the parasite is all the 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 weirdness, the impulsivity, and the reckless driving, it's more commonly found in men. So there was this one study where if they were infected with the parasite, they were more likely to report that they liked the smell of cat urine. So I have this couch in my basement that I had a very old cat who lived to 20 and peed all over the cat. And I can smell the cat urine like all the time, I sip in the basement. And I just I smell cat urine. So whenever I have guests over, I pick up the seat cushion. I go, "What do you smell?" <laughs> and if if they say I don't smell anything, then I have to inform them that they they've been infected by a parasite that has rewired their brain. Uh, we went a little bit long in the last segment, Carlin. Um, so we have a very short segment here, and I really need an answer to this question: Where does an uglitarian fall on chickens? <laughs> Chickens are tough. Chickens are really tough. I mean, they're so cute as chicks. I, so how yeah. does the, you know how how does that work? And the, you know they they used to be dinosaurs. So <laughs> in dinosaurs, yeah, I don't know. Chickens, I, I will eat chicken sometimes. When we come back from the break, we're going to talk about uh, King Kong and Godzilla. 
arguably two of the most popular monsters in pop culture. But we've got about a minute here. Where can people get a hold of all of this work that you've done? Uh, you know, the book is back-ordered right now, so it's, oh, wow. a little difficult. <laughs> it's a little difficult to get a hold of. But it's in all major bookstores, and I always say please support your local bookstore, too. Yeah, that's important, isn't it? Yeah, it is. And we're losing uh, not just bookstores, but we're losing a lot of our mom and pop and local retailers. And uh, yeah. I, I don't think I don't think everyone has understood the consequences of that, um, which is sad. Uh, and under- yeah. it's, uh, it's understandable in this digital age, but it's sad at the same time. We need to support them when we can. Yeah, because when you walk into a local bookstore, those booksellers understand books better than anyone. And your website is your name, and uh, yes. it's uh, carlinbetcha.com. Uh, Facebook or anything else you'd like people to follow? You know, I, I'm not really, I'm a very, I'm an introvert, so I don't use a lot of social media, but I just started using Instagram, and every Friday I feature Monster of the Week, so oh. they can follow me on Instagram. Um, Carlin, as uh, this is our last segment, so we've got a lot of ground to cover here, but the most important question of the night might be this. Godzilla or King Kong, which one of those two is truly the king of the monsters? Mm, well, I'm going to have to go with Godzilla because he's got nuclear breath. That's pretty I mean, powerful, yeah. Yeah, so, yeah. And I grew up in that age where that was very scary, so I'm going to go with Godzilla. All right, so let's talk about Godzilla then. Um, obviously, Godzilla, both King Kong and Godzilla have seen a resurgence in film recently. Um, the Godzilla films that are being produced today are a completely different uh, version of, of uh, I'll use the word, horror film uh, than the originals. Uh, there was something awfully charming about those original Godzilla films because of the fact they were Japanese creations and they were overdubbed into English. And um, they had a guy in a rubber suit jumping around on model trains and and tanks and buildings. Um, but what's the what's the legend behind the lore here? What what are we talking about when we actually talk about a monster called Godzilla? Well, if we're talking about the science behind Godzilla, it, it was you know the reason why I ended the book with that chapter is because it, it's actually one of the only monsters that really points to man's ability to self destruct. And what I mean by that is, if you look at how Japanese audiences viewed Godzilla, it was very different from the way American audiences viewed it. It became something sort of campy over time. But in the original 1954 Godzilla, it was was a poignant film and something that came out of a very real tragedy. And one of the examples I always give is an innocuous piece of fashion, the bikini you know, we think of the bikini as just a piece of fabric, but it came out of this very real tragedy of the Bikini Atoll Islands testing on that. And what's fascinating to me about the Godzilla as a monster is after we dropped the bombs on Hiroshima and Nagasaki, how there wasn't really a lot of knowledge about what exactly that devastation caused. We didn't see, and this would never happen today, by the way, we didn't see people with keloid scars. We didn't see people with radiation sickness. What we saw was the mushroom clouds sending into the sky. Right. And I think that's, it's a very apropos way to end this book because it talks about, you know, we have the ability to be monstrous. Humans have the ability to be monstrous at any space and time. And uh, Godzilla is a monster that shows that. And maybe it's because I'm of the generation, I don't know about you, but I grew up really fearing nuclear fallouts. So there's a spread in the book about how to survive if Godzilla comes to your town. And it's basically how to survive nuclear fallouts. And that was important to me because I felt like... I wanted to give the reader a sense of empowerment that how you could survive a nuclear disaster. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, it wasn't that long ago that there were buildings in every community that had a big sign on them that said fallout shelter. Yeah, you know, exactly. th- those were places that you were supposed to go in the event of a nuclear attack. There were stronger buildings and they 
They had some um, additional protections in them or to them. Um, and school children, and I, I don't remember doing this. I don't. I think it was before me. But uh, school children are taught how to uh, duck and cover or how, whatever it was under their desks. Um, you know, in the event of attack. I mean, most people of uh, you know a good twenty year span uh, expected the a nuclear attack could happen at any time. Yeah, my father told me stories about that, that as a child, he was taught to get under his desk. And, you know, those those rules still apply. You do need to stay low if there's a nuclear fallout. So, I mean, the book is all tongue-in-cheek, and, it's all, and I don't mean to end in a very, you know, grim way, because <laughs> it is supposed to be a fun book. But, you know, I I feel that if you... if you're prepared for your fears that you can overcome them in a way that's a lot more powerful. So, I mean, one of the like little interesting sidebars is that, you know, if, if, if there is an, a nuclear fallout, don't wear black, wear white, because uh, dark colors absorb more radiation, and, you know, there's potassium iodine that can help you, too. You should get immediately get naked, take your clothes off, because that can help. And, you know, this is all outlined in the book, but find shelter, too. Um, and there's um, a graphic that shows which buildings you should go to, because it's Godzilla is one of the monsters that's probably the most visceral out of all the monsters. You're not going to be attacked by a vampire. You're not going to be attacked by a werewolf. Uh, nuclear fallouts are always a possibility. Well, it, and not just a possibility. They're a reality. I mean, there are places around the world, and I know you have a map in the book yep. that illustrates the places that have high radiation concentrations that are very, very dangerous, and there are very strange things going on in those places. Yeah, and some of those places are in the United States. And, you know, it's it's all fun. I talk about, you know, some of the animals that have undergone radiation. And a lot of our um, conspiracy theories about some of these cryptids like Mothman or whatnot, you know, their government experiments, experiments or what. And I'm not a conspiracy theorist at all. But I just want people to be aware that there there are areas in the United States that have higher levels of radiation. The um, Godzilla story and, and the way you just described it as it relates to the atomic age um, kind of serves as a bit of a poster child for a lot of monster films that not just the Japanese were making, but certainly the Americans were making throughout the 1950s into the 60s. You know, these these stories about giant ants or giant grasshoppers or, you know, this deformed creature, uh, all related to the atomic age. Um, so there was a not just one or two films about this, but it was it was very, very common and dominated this type of cinema for a long time. Yeah. I mean, one of the films that was just released was uh, Chernobyl on HBO. I mean, that was more on a nonfiction bent. But I mean, I found that terrifying because, I mean, it, it's a historical event, but you know, these wolves are changing, and you have the the red forest. It's 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 just beyond your what you could possibly think about to think that the, what if this happened here? You know, what if we had some sort of nuclear fallout, and all our animals started to change, and we had you know these uh, one of the um, the animals that is in the book is um, Geiger counter cat. And they're used, scientists are using them to basically change their DNA so that they glow if they come into contact with radiation. And this is all very futuristic stuff. They're doing this so that if we ever do have the possibility of this, that we can alert other people to know that, okay, this area has radiation in it. Wow. Um, it's a little bit late to notify or, or mention this, but I will mention it anyway. Turner Classic Movies Monster of the Month was Godzilla for October, and they uh, featured, I think, about every Godzilla film that came out of Japan um, from the original one right through all the, you know, Mothra and all these other creatures that they ended up coming up with. It was kind of fun to watch some of those. Um There are two we have to talk about in the time we have left. I do want to talk about... Uh, uh, King Kong a little bit because 
the uh, science behind the King Kong story is pretty interesting. And we all, you know, we all think of a giant ape climbing the Empire State State Building um, and dubbed the eighth wonder of the world. But this whole fascination with gorillas uh, predated that film by not a lot of years, because, uh, you know, we have to remember that in the turn of the 20th century, that people didn't have access to this information. This was all new stuff. Yeah, so I'm going to, since we're running out of time, I'm going to combine two monsters in one. For example, Bigfoot. You have a lot of skeptics around Bigfoot. But you have to remember that in 1901, gorillas were first discovered. So before that, no one believed. There was all these stories in the Congo about these big, hairy creatures that look like men, and everyone thought, okay, you're flipping crazy to think that there's a species that looks like men. And it turns out gorillas were real. So, and I use that as an example because in in the Bigfoot chapter to say, okay, so Bigfoot is a cryptid now, but if we discover some scat or some DNA, it becomes a real species. And I think that's why audiences were so fascinated with King Kong when it was first released, because they didn't have a lot of knowledge of King Kong. So can you imagine if we discovered a Bigfoot and some movie producer decided to make a movie about it? I mean, audiences would flock to that. And the other thing that was really fascinating about that film when it was released, and I think it was, was it 1931? Is that right? Somewhere in there. Um, yeah. The other thing that was neat about that is, you know, you, it's on the heels of uh, of uh, Dracula with Bela Lugosi. Now, it's one thing to put a man in a, in a costume and make him Dracula. Uh, it's another thing to see a creature in, in a special, special effects sense that towers over any man and, you know, stands next to buildings and crushes cars and climbs the Empire State Building. And there's a special effects component to that that just had never been seen before as well. Yeah, I mean, one of the science things that I pick apart is, uh, you know, that scene where Godzilla falls from the Empire State Building, and, you know, you see his big mound of flesh, and all the New Yorkers are looking onto him. And uh, I, I talk a little bit about that. that. That would never happen. It would never happen that way. God, you know, King Kong would actually explode if yeah. he was to fall <laughs> from that that <laughs> yeah that's true that's true and and the other interesting thing about the king kong story versus godzilla king kong is romantically uh motivated in a lot of what he's doing yeah i mean one of the things that i i mean when i i mean maybe this is me personally but when i go to the zoo i am fascinated by the gorillas because they have they're so much like us and one of the things that I found so interesting when researching gorillas for the King Kong chapter is they will actually develop crushes on their caretakers. So they will give them like little gifts and, you know, and, and kind of tokens of love. And you have those, those very, very emotional scenes where King Kong is falling in love with his lady love in, in various re- reiterations of the movie. But that, that actually is kind of real because gorillas actually do develop crushes on humans. Um, we're almost out of time. We've just got a couple of minutes left. Uh, I just want to mention that you know we've talked a lot about these monsters. We didn't touch on all of the monsters that are included in the book, and we didn't touch on all the detail of the monsters we did talk about. This is a great book. It's fascinating. It's very timely. I know that Halloween is basically within the next uh, 24, 48 hours here, uh, but this monster discussion um, supersedes and extends beyond that. So I encourage people to seek out the book. It's back-ordered, according to you, uh, Carlin, but it should be available at some time, right? Yeah, I'm hoping in a, in a few days. I think it's back order only because it's right before Halloween. Yeah, that makes sense. What's next for you? What are you working on next? I am working on something totally different. It's called Ten at Ten, and it tells ten famous stories of, of people throughout history, but told from the, the point of view when they were ten years old. Oh, <laughs> Again, that I, 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 look, I look at your, your books and the, and the topics, the subjects of each of those books, and they're so very, very different. And I find it fascinating how, I mean, I don't think I'd ever even think in those terms, but that's going to be a very, uh, very fascinating look at some very interesting people, I imagine. 
yeah, um, I mean, what was Einstein like at 10 years old? You know, what was Louis Armstrong like at 10 years old? So I'm always trying to think like a child. So I'm hoping that will resonate with kids of that age. Now, you do some um, school appearances and you do uh, other appearances, maybe bookstore signings. Anything coming up in in, uh, the near future that people might want to look for? I am done with my book tour after the 31st, and I'm going to be doing school visits at that time. Oh, I do have a TV interview that's going to be airing on uh, Halloween. So if you're in the New York area, uh, it's PBS Channel 13 on Metro Focus. Carlin, this has been a great discussion. It's uh, been a lot of fun. Very, very few ellipses. I know that might disappoint you, um, (laughs) but, but either way, I really appreciate your time. Thank you for being on the show tonight. Thank you so much for having me. Well, Mr. Butts, that was a close call. You're recovering nicely, but good thing you got here for that emergency surgery when you did. Yeah, I feel great now. Oh, and here's the bill for what the insurance didn't cover. What? Well, there goes another one. Call it, nurse. I've got lunch in 10 minutes. Crap Coat presents. Has this ever happened to you? Go to the hospital for a little surgery only to be stricken by huge bilitis? Well, not anymore with the Crapco Home Surgery Kit. I was having a little pain in my side and the doctor wanted $200 to look at me. A couple of minutes later on the internet, I was pretty sure it was my appendix. The wife grabbed the Crapco Home Surgery Kit we got for Christmas and 20 minutes later, we were on our way to dinner at the Olive Garden. And cleanup was a snap. Well, except the vomit. Thanks, Crapco. I got an estimate of $3,700 for circumcision. I was able to do it myself in the comforts of my own bed with Crapco's home surgery kit. After a couple minor infections, I was up moving around like a rabbi walking by a mosque at night. And my wife, she was real happy. Thanks, Crapco. With the Crapco home surgery kit, you can perform most household surgeries in minutes and order the special add-on packs for even more cost savings like the cardiac arama, the orthopalooza, the bariatric bonanza, and don't forget the home augmentation arsenal. Hey, baby, you're looking hot. Yeah, but I wish these were bigger. No problem. Come over to my place. I've got the Crapco Home Surgery Kit with the Augmentation Arsenal. Can you say memories and margaritas? <laughs> Thanks, Crapco. The Crapco Home Surgery Kit normally retails for $99.95, but order today and you'll receive the Home Surgery Kit, the Orthopalooza add-on, and the decorative Crapco Catheter Curio Cabinet, all for $19.95. The Crapco Home Surgery Kit is not recommended for all surgeries and in some cases may negate your life insurance or your life. Read your policies for details. Some side effects include removing the wrong organs, scarring, and not living. So order yours today. That sounds kind of perfect for Halloween, the Crabco Home Surgery Kit. Anyway, thank you to Carlin Betcha for being with us tonight. Great conversation about monsters. Take a minute, watch a good scary movie with your kids, your loved one, whoever it happens to be, alone even. You know what one of the, the scariest ideas, Arturo, to me is, is that, remember the film uh, where uh, the, the babysitter kept getting phone calls and then... Um, it turned out the calls were coming from inside the house. Yes. That one still scares. The, there's no monster other than another person. Whatever. Find your comfort zone with a good monster movie. Enjoy it as we enter Halloween here. Have a great night. We'll see everybody tomorrow night. Beyond Reality Radio is hosted by Jason Hawes and J.V. Johnson and produced by Alexandria Johnson and Slick Eddie Edwards for Intercom Radio. Beyond Reality Radio is distributed by Westwood One Radio Networks. Stop by our Facebook page and say hello. Follow the hosts on Facebook as well. For Jason Hawes, follow at JasonHawes.Taps. For J.V. Johnson, follow at JVJParanormal. If you'd like to be a guest on Beyond Reality Radio or you have a suggestion for a guest, contact Slick Eddie Edwards at SlickEddieEdwards at gmail.com. Be sure to visit our chat room as well at beyondrealityradio.com. Thanks for listening.